Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think a lot of my difficulties are ADD inspired. everybody, it's Christopher Tjumf, and I'm back with another lovely interview in the Varvet International series, number 37 to be exact. Today's guest is the wonderful Andy Kindler, born some 58 years ago in Queens, New York, now residing in Los Angeles where this interview was done some time back. He is one of the established and loved comedians around, and he should be. I mean, he started almost 30 years ago, and he's done some great work. Otherwise, he's sort of famous for his bits about his comedy colleagues. He doesn't really beat around the bush when it comes to criticizing them. He also jokes about show business and his shortcomings. And he's famous from TV. He was on Everybody Loves Raymond. He's been tons of times on Late Show with David Letterman. He's also a regular on The Marin Show that we'll discuss further in just a little while. And he does a voice in Bob's Burgers, among loads of other stuff, of course. Also, I get to use a word I learned on this show, the Melora Hardin episode, masturbatory. Masturbatory. Not sure I pronounced it correctly, but anyways. And for you listeners who are acquainted with my style of interviewing, this is kind of more me, for better and worse. I won't apologize for it. It just happened. So now, recorded in Los Angeles, here's Andy Kindler. Roll the tape, please. How are you today, Mr. Kindler? I'm very good. I'm very excited about doing this podcast. Todd Barry has been singing your praises. He has. He's been singing your praises, and he doesn't usually sing anyone's praises. I think he's a fan. Well, I'm a fan of his. He told me well. months ago, or a long time ago, maybe you were at a festival, like Moon Tower, maybe? Mm-hmm. No? No. Montreal? No. Sweden? Yes. Maybe you were in New York doing stuff. Well, actually, yeah, I interviewed him in New York. That's but, what it was. But then he came to Sweden. I fixed a gig for him, or me and my producer fixed a gig for him at the festival in Sweden. So he came there. I wanted him to do a crowd work tour thing in Sweden, but he wouldn't. So he did the. Uh, he, why wouldn't he do it? You never know with him. It may be because of the hotel that you picked. All right. That's traffic, folks. Don't worry about it. No, we'll I cover know. it up with Sweden tone. It's very annoying. I picked a, a super bad address for doing interviews, and not even with the charm of, say, New York City Street. Exactly. I don't know where I can find a quiet place to rent a, an apartment in Los Angeles because 
if you go up in the hills, there's going to be construction workers right. and gardeners. And down here, it's traffic and all the policemen and firemen and so forth. Maybe the valley. Maybe the valley. But then you wouldn't want to be in the valley. I just moved to the valley, so I'm excited about it. Ooh, but most people don't. Sherman Oaks. Most people weren't. But there's noises. The construction started when I was about 17 and hasn't stopped yet. And they're always building. Yeah. And also, you're supposed to have a recession. Well, but we're, we're, I've been out of the recession for a while now. Okay. But a lot of people say the economy hasn't improved so much. But in many ways, it has. It's just the uh, fact that it's, it, it, it's more of the race to the bottom thing with people getting very, very rich and, and uh, there's no middle ground. So the middle class is shrinking. Why is that? Well, I'm a political junkie. So fill in your own heroin joke. But... And I'm a huge Obama supporter, so I love Obama. And Obama, to love Obama, you don't even get that much support from the progressives. Because everybody has... There's a very cynical attitude going on in America, which is understandable. But basically, you have these CEOs making so many more times the money that the regular worker makes. And they... Because in America, the more money you have, the more you're able to influence politics. So I'll give you a perfect example. It used to be something called a, um, a ta- it was a ta- I forgot the name of the tax. That's how bad I am. But it's a tax aimed at when millionaires used to be able to declare to ma- pay no taxes because they had these uh, all these different deductions they were able to declare. So they passed this minimum tax that you have to pay no matter how many deductions you take. But it was really hitting people making $70,000 a year, $100,000 a year, $60,000 a year. It was hitting them because there was, it would just keep going up because they don't organize. Okay. So it's really the rich, rich people who organize. And it's, just, it's a bad situation because the rich people in this country, they don't, they don't want to pay any more money in taxes. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. For the last, what is it, six years, you've had President Obama. And it feels like, I mean, all the discussion has been like it's still polarizing. I mean, people are, the poor get poorer and the rich gets richer. But Obama's supposed to sort of shrink that with Obamacare and so forth. Well, Obamacare was the, you know, I believe will be the single greatest uh, achievement of our lifetimes. It's ridiculous that we're, you know, I don't know about Sweden. I think it's basically, we'd be much better off with what they call a single payer plan where everybody pays in. Countries where everybody pays in off of your taxes. It makes much more sense. Here it was employer-based for so long. That's that's how we roll in in Sweden. Right, but... In Switzerland, because I watched a documentary about every, all the places in the world. In Switzerland, not about Sweden, but in Switzerland, they have made the uh, insurance companies be very competitive. So they have to deliver at the right price. And so that can work. Like here, it would be very hard to go to a single payer because of how many years it's been. But the benefits of Obamacare, will, you know, they just announced 16 million people have signed up. I mean, it's going to get more and more and more. We've created the pool that everybody has to drop into. But you have a party. I don't know what the situation is in Sweden. But you have a two-party system in our country where the GOP, not that there's no good Republicans, but is a thoroughly evil party. Thoroughly evil. So, for example, they don't care. The Republicans don't care if, if there's a nuclear holocaust in Iran because they, they'd rather have Netanyahu get – and I'm Jewish, so I'm allowed to despise Netanyahu. <laughs> I have a, a pass. But they don't care. Netanyahu doesn't care what happens about the nuclear weapons in Iran. He cares about his, his own power. Yeah. And that's the way it is GOP here. They're trying to stop black people from voting. The tradition of the 
Republicans what? being Wait. conservative. They, yeah, they they want these things. They they everything is a lie. The lie is we're having all this fraud at the polls. We have to stop these. Which, of course, if you think about it logically, do you think you can really steal an election by sending imposters to the polls? What do you do? You tell the guy who is supposed to go, don't go today, or you pay him off. So. They claim it's so there's no fraud, but they just want to keep like a hundred year old black person who has no ID. Uh-huh. And then they keep saying, well, all these other countries do it, but these other countries have national IDs. Yeah, yeah. And then, then that's another discussion. Do you want a national ID in America? If you do, that's fine. Then everyone gets the ID. But then to make people who have never had an ID in their life, I've never been asked for ID when I go vote. So yeah. that's the thing. And it's, it's like I've, that way with every issue. I've been asked uh, an ID when I go vote every time. Right. But here's the thing. I would imagine that Sweden is not culturally diverse. Is it culturally diverse or is it more? In terms of minorities and, and immigration and so forth. It is? Yeah, it's become, uh, I think we're one of the most generous countries in Europe when it comes to immigration. Is everybody provided an ID? Not sure about that. It's okay. not mandatory, I think, but basically you can't go by without it. Right. So it's just a different because I like a lot of times like my sister was an educator for 35 years, so I'm very much against this whole, you know, teaching to the test and blaming teachers. And when they compare them to other countries that do better like Norway, my sister always says, "Well, those countries don't have to deal with all the different diversity and all the different like in this country teachers are being blamed for the poverty of the neighborhoods they live in okay so they're living they're teaching in a horrible school and i don't mean horrible school i mean like like a very poor school mm. or like that has no resources and then they're, they're penalized because their kids aren't scoring well on tests and meanwhile some of these kids don't even can't even go to high school because they're already supporting their family so it's like these are wedge issues the main idea i'm saying is you could say make any argument you can go hey it'd be good to have voter id that's fine but that's not what the argument's about the argument is to undo the civil the voting rights act is to make it harder and harder and harder for people to vote because they vote democratic yeah okay also about the schools um, it wasn't that long ago that i understood that schools here are financed by the taxes of the, the property around them right so the beverly hills schools have loads of cash while the ones in compton don't have that much cash. Is that how it works? Well, I would say that there is, this is where it gets to be, like if you talk, if you have my sister here, she would tell you better. I don't know, I mean, there is some federal money for taxes and there may be some state money that goes to it too. But I know for a fact that in these different areas that are nicer areas, the schools are better. So, and in fact, people fight, they pay more to get into like Studio City because the school system is so much better in that area. And the other argument is that they have charter schools here. And the charter schools, but they don't have to take all the kids. I don't know what a charter school is. Charter school means like you are going to teach kids, but you are going to be outside of the public school system, but the kids are getting vouchers instead of, they get money instead of the money that would have gone into public schools. Okay. And sometimes it can work. I mean, there's definitely problems with the education system, but it's not solved by ganging up on teachers or making these kids, I don't know about Sweden, but the kids, all they do is have homework and tests. Yeah. If you would single out what is America's top problem, what would you say that it is? Well, to me, it's easy to say because I'm living through it. I think right now the the biggest problem is the Republican Party is the biggest problem in this country. And it's like I would love there to be a two-party system. In many ways, I don't consider myself to be ideological, although people would doubt that. But there's so many problems. I mean, I argue on Twitter all the time 
horrible arguments because I was raised to respect people if they have to not judge people based on their religious affiliation. And the fact that you have these people like Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and all of this new atheist movement, which tells you you're an idiot if you're not, if you believe in God, even though they don't even know what you may use by that. Like I use the word God as a word that is a word you use to describe what you cannot express. So I have a feeling from music, from drug experiences, from comedy, that we enter into this other part of our minds. I don't know what it is. It's not anti-evolution. It has nothing to do with with it has to be scientifically proved. Mm. And this whole movement is saying that's stupid. You're stupid because you are to even express that is stupid. And they try and pin you down. Like I used to use the word spiritual. They're like, what do you mean by spiritual? And so there's been this whole movement. But the thing that underpins my real anger in it is that I grew up Jewish. I was obsessed with Hitler. I'm still obsessed with Hitler. I had no direct descendants in the camps, but there's something in my DNA about it. Yeah, and what's happening with the Muslims right now in this country and in Germany, there's a, not, not the, the government of Germany, Merkel, she knows where this can lead, but there's this big movement now that the anti-Islamic movement, it was exactly like Germany in the 30s. There's no difference between it. First you decide that what they believe is terrible, and then you feel better about the fact that you want to round them up. So that's a big problem, I think. <laughs> we can talk about Bill Maher as well, because I interviewed him like a week ago. But uh, You did? Yeah, I did. Oh, my God. <laughs> so when you interview him, yeah. well, I don't know what you're... See, when I meet somebody, yes. and I get the feeling about them, mm-hmm. so like I would feel that you wouldn't be in the Bill Maher camp thought-wise, but I could be completely wrong about that. He has his points. I mean, for instance, I mean, with the liberal idea of like legalizing drugs and so forth. Yes. He, th- th- in fact, I used to be a fan of his because I, mean, I used to be a fan of that show, at least. Yeah. His show changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's like almost like to me, his downfall, because I think he, he is a bigot. And, and I don't shy away from saying it. He is a bigot and he's a, and I don't ultimately judge, but I judge him as being that it's wrong and it's leading to terrible things. But he didn't used to be that way. He used to be, in fact, he used to believe in God, actually. Yeah. yeah. He, he was raised uh, Jewish, Catholic, yeah. some kind of mix, right? Right. I just saw, um, and I, it's been a long day for me already, but, but what's his name? The great, great... A director of movies, he did Spielberg? like Birds. Oh, uh, Albert, Albert, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, it's Alfred or Albert, Alfred, Alfred <laughs> Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. Well, didn't Hitchcock sort of produce a documentary about World War Two and the liberation of the camps? Oh, what's it called? Oh, you, is this what you just saw? They come at night. Oh, okay. You can unput your phone in flight mode now just to Google that. No, I'm not, going to. To, I'm, not, I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to make it a note to myself. Okay. I would never violate. You are very worried that I would lie about uh, flight mode, and I can't believe it, <laughs> because the only person who should worry about, that you should worry about with flight mode is Robert Durst. Am I right, ladies and gentlemen? Who is Robert Durst? He's the guy who may have allegedly murdered uh, like his wife. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, he's a flight risk. Yeah, okay. The Jinx, man. <laughs> the Jinx, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. They come at night. Okay, cool. And so what did that documentary show you? Just a second. I'll, I'll just... It's I, very hard to interview a uh, ADD guy. Do you have ADD? Yeah, I do. It was undiagnosed for many years. But now it is? It is diagnosed. And for many years, I thought that I, I was like a babe, like I was making up a disease. Because everybody said I was, you know... We're all... A lot of podcasts these days, there's a lot of texting notes to yourself. 
during yeah. the podcast. Yeah, but it's so, I mean, you learn so much. I'm not much of a reader. I am not diagnosed with ADD, but I would assume that I could be because I can't, my attention span is too short to read Yes, these days. Or the other is, like, my wife's a really brilliant photographer. I'm allowed to say that, but she's very shy. But she's more visually oriented in general. Yeah. So sometimes you could just be more visually oriented and you just don't, and the pages, because we're all told that reading is great, but it's, it is great. Yeah. And I read a lot, but I read a lot of short stuff as opposed to, I can't read books much anymore. No, but just a second. I'll, I'll check what, what the... Uh, Night Will Fall. Okay. Night Will Fall. Okay. That's the name of the movie. And what that movie made me realize was that... I mean, ever since I was in school, we learned that six million Jews were killed in the concentration camps. And it's been sort of almost a mantra, so it's, it didn't really mean anything to me right. until I saw that movie. And I understood what they, how it was actually like done. The handicraft of killing so much people. And that made me realize what it m- must have... I mean, I can't grasp it, but what it must mean to the people who survived it. And the people who were in camp but survived for some reason. Perhaps they stepped on a toe to survive. Perhaps right. they did something bad being there. Or just... I mean, the, the guilt of not being the one who was cast to death right, in, in right. one of the showers. Yes. That must sort of be such a burden for the whole generation, like your generation as well, because you, I mean, I don't know where I'm getting at. But no, I know what you mean. Well, the thing is, see, from where I'm coming from, like I argue with people a lot in the line, uh, online because I also grew up just obsessed by it. And also I had tremendous... I had a very traumatic experience. Well, not, I mean, believe me, my traumas don't, <laughs> don't equal real trauma. But when I was in Hebrew school, when I was a kid, on the Sundays, we'd go to, I would brought up Reform. I don't know if you're familiar with the difference. But Reform is like almost, it's like Orthodox, Conservative Reform. Reform is the more progressive or less ritual-based form of Judaism. Didn't but, you even have a kippah? No. All right. Okay. What is I don't even know. You mean the thing on my head? Yeah. Oh, oh, the yarmulke? Yeah, that's so funny. I didn't even recognize that. No, I did not wear yarmulkes, no. Yarmulkes? Yeah. But you're right, too. I've heard the other words. What's a kippah? I think it might be the same word. Yeah, all right. But sometimes I'm bad and I should know more Yiddish. Yeah, but that's it. Yeah, so we we were very, yeah, it was just like not, we didn't, uh, we're not kosher, that kind of thing. But when I was eight years old, they showed these concentration camps. Do you even eat bacon? I do. I eat all that stuff. So okay. nothing. There's no right. real. I'm not, I'm not even close to being. I'm culturally Jewish at this point. All right. And I'm personally spiritual, but culturally Jewish. But uh, they would show concentration camp photos of like piles of bodies, and I was just too young. It was just too young for me. Yeah. To so it's almost like I feel like I was reincarnated or something, and I was in the camps in a different life. I mean, it's it's just it, the fascination with it goes beyond. I think. The person, you know, the whole movement, it's something like an existential experience for me to go into it. So, yeah, that's what makes me so sensitive to when I see it starting to whip up for other people. And it's like, oh, that person's Muslim. I have to be suspicious of them. But Bill Maher's point is perhaps that, I mean, that you can't really separate. I'm sure he realizes that there are millions and millions and millions of Muslims that aren't extremists. He's, he gives lip service to it. 
But he doesn't believe that there's – he gives lip service. He goes, I never said that all of them are this. But hundreds and hundreds of millions of them he thinks agrees with uh, the, the general principles of ISIS. Oh. He has said Islam is the problem. So – you know, be, yeah, getting okay. it. Be, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin this with my with my ongoing Bill Maher thing. I'll just let it be. He is a person, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. He's not a very well informed person, which is uh, weird that he would be hosting a show about politics. Mm-hmm. There's some areas that he knows a lot about, like smoking weed and and libertarian issues. But when it comes to religion, he knows nothing about it. He doesn't. He doesn't. And even when they had had people on his show asking him if he knew what a Sufi is, you know, he listens to other people. And so he read this book by Sam Harris, and now he's made his conclusions. And so that's based on that, really, is what it is. What is a Sufi? Sufi Muslims are like a more of a, it's almost like a, uh, you know how you hear those part of Judaism, Kabbalah? Yeah. They're a part of more mystical, it's a more mystical form of Islam. All right. But I believe that all the great, quote, prophets, I mean, I know there's weird offshoots of religions, but whether it's Muhammad or Jesus or Buddha, they were all basically, I believe, saying the same thing, yeah. basically. That there, whatever you want to call this thing of God is the same for all of us type of thing. And what people like Bill Maher are saying is, no, they're saying their God is different. And that's, to me, they're mixing up. I re- recommend that if you even interview this woman, her name is Karen Armstrong. You've heard of her? No. Brilliant. Okay. Brilliant lady. Mm-hmm. Brilliant lady. And her whole thing is, to, she just wrote a, a book about religion and war. And she's just saying, like, uh, these are political issues. It's like, uh, do you think the guy in North Korea, North Korea he's an atheist, uh, Stalin was an atheist. This idea of focusing on, it's like focusing on the Beatles when you're talking about Charles Manson and trying to analyze what in the Beatles is bad because Charles Manson was influenced by it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. uh, I bored you to tears. No, not. You're almost crying. Or contrary, sir. To the contrary? Yes. I was trying to impress you by speaking French. I'm not funny, though. This is in my funniest interview so far. No, but maybe you will... We'll Pick it up? Yeah, but also you don't have to be funny. I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just constantly analyzing myself. I'm not very funny either. If Todd Barry likes you, you must be an amazingly great person. Well, I'm a good listener, I, I think. I'm not as good a listener. That's one of my downsides. Yeah, but tell me about the ADD. I mean, you thought that you had it. I thought I was lazy my whole life. Okay. And that there was something, because I come from the raised in America, which maybe is everywhere, where you're like the Christian work ethic, even if you're not Christian, and everything is, you know. Even when you hear, like, I hate when people give advice about stand up comedy and they go, you got to realize it's hard work. It's the worst thing to say about anything. Like, I, like I've been on stage thousands of times. I don't consider, but if you say oh, it's, it's, it, you will have to put in twelve thousand hours, it's just the whole emphasizing the work thing. I think is a, is not a way to uh, to approach life. But for the first fifty years, I just thought I, I couldn't focus, and then I started to read more about it, and I realized, oh, I really have this. And then I saw that there's a lot of stuff in the media about it's overprescribed, which isn't even really necessarily that true. A lot of people hold out medication for their kids when they should be using it. So I was definitely someone who. And on stage, it's very interesting because I'll go every seven seconds, my mind will go blank. Uh huh. Okay. Literally. I yeah. mean, I have no idea where I am. And then taking you're, you're medic- like a gold, goldfish. Yes. Yeah. All right. So I take medication for it, but the medication doesn't stop me from doing stream of consciousness. It doesn't stop me from doing what I do. It just makes me easier to focus when I want to focus. All right. So you are on amphetamine ish. Yes. Yes. 
substances. And that doesn't make you sort of speedy. I was speedy before. I was self-medicating my whole life. I was drinking coffee when they were telling me it was bad. Now it's the greatest beverage on the planet. It fights Parkinson's disease, which is why I tell people... I tell people a lot, don't listen to anything a doctor says about anything. I mean, don't take it as the gospel, because if you did, you'd be shoving carbs in, in yourself in the 80s yeah. and thinking that if you ate no fat, you were going to lose weight. And the same thing with coffee. I always knew coffee was great for me. It always made me feel better. Yeah. And so the fact that I wasn't listening to the rumors or the, the current thinking. And so when I take the medicine, it mm. actually calms me down. And I noticed it on planes because I used to get so, my stomach would get upset and it was because my mind is all over the map and these just basically calm me down and make me able to focus. If you feel a little bit gassy on a plane, that's totally normal because you're, the air in your body, it expands 35% or something. Right. I think what you're saying is absolutely right. Regardless of what you do, but this was even beyond that. This was a psychological thing of like the, maybe it was even just the reaction to the gas expanding. It would yeah. be like my body, and so yeah, it hasn't solved every single. I'm not saying that it has, has solved all my digestive problems. No, but how did you react to alcohol? I like the idea of alcohol, but then I get very sleepy after the second drink, so that's why I don't drink. But I mean, I, I do enjoy a wine every once in a while. Right. Lovely. Have you tried cocaine or amphetamine? I well, here's the thing. I never tried anything like heroin or anything like that. No. But in the 80s, it would be hard to claim that you didn't try cocaine. I was around in the 80s. Yeah. And I'm glad that I didn't have the money, and I'm glad that my metabolism was weak. Because right. I had a couple of nights that I felt like uh, I was going to die. And I hated the feeling of going down. Yeah, afterwards, yeah. That's the biggest, which is why I do love pot, although for medical insurance purposes... Everything I'm saying is the character of Andy Kindler. Okay, yeah. <laughs> But pot is great because pot, when you come down from pot, you don't even really notice that you're coming down from it. Whereas cocaine was like, oh my God, I feel so great for a minute, and then uh, I've never been more depressed in my life. Yeah. The amphetamines that I take, what they do is, obviously, in, I remember in college I would take liquid, like even like liquid, I don't know what the hell it was. But it would make you like you, your head was going to come off. And I did love the feeling. Mm. But whatever they've done for what I'm taking, it's a lot less. And so I don't. But if the question is, do I am more attracted to uppers? I am attracted to upper type things. Yeah. But that wasn't the question. But cocaine, it was, it was so. I'm a big fan of Ken Kesey and the whole 60s, Grateful Dead and uh, Kerouac. And, and Ken Kesey said that cocaine ruined the 60s mm -hmm, because okay. the hallucinogenics were a different feeling. And I think he's right. In a lot of ways, the co that cocaine feeling is just so... But some people react... They say that a lot of people actually don't react to cocaine that violently. But how are you with the, with the acid? I can't take any more hallucinogenics. My wife and I, we uh, took mushrooms together about seven years ago and we thought we were going to die. I think as you get older... That sense of losing control, you don't want that so much anymore. No. But ecstasy I loved when that was popular. Okay, yeah. But I wouldn't take it now. See, the problem now is you don't know what you're getting. I was wondering about Letterman. Performing on Letterman, you're not holding a microphone. Do you get to choose? This was a recent rule change, probably around eight or nine years ago. Okay. I don't know that it's true, but I heard it was based on what Johnny Carson did. And I have to go back and see if most of the comics weren't using a handheld mic. 
when it was introduced, see, my thing is because he's been my hero for so long that whatever he wants, Letterman, I'm, yeah, Letterman, he's been yeah. my he's my comedy hero. Yeah. I mean, I have other heroes, uh, Woody Allen, Albert Brooks, Richard Pryor. You know, there's a lot of people who I love, but also I grew up on like sitcoms, so I love like Mary Tyler Moore, and I loved comedy in general. But whatever he would be wanting, I was for. For example, Letterman, I had heard doesn't like you to work with bullet points. Mm-hmm. Bullet points are the things on the prompter. So I've never used, and I have ADD, I have never used bullet points on his show because I know that he doesn't like it. But it may not even tr- be true that he doesn't like it. It's what I heard. So I also heard early on that he would prefer you to be a little bit dressed up. So I wear a jacket on that show because it's his house and I want to be respectful of his house and I, lo- and I love him. And so similarly with the microphone, when it was told to me, at first you're nervous and I was like, oh, this can't – now I'm totally comfortable with it. Yeah. And the reason why I think it does work is because it's not a nightclub. So when you take a microphone and you're working a theater stage like a, like a club, that doesn't also necessarily look normal as well. On the other hand, I definitely understand the comics who want to be able to vocalize with the mic next to them. So I get it, but it has not been a problem for me. I came into comedy just a few years ago, and one of the things that blew my mind on my like first or second gig that I went to as an audience, it was the guy, uh, I think his name is Simon, he used the mic stand, and he used it as a, a segue, you know, the the uh, the thing that you ride on, on the street. And it... Uh- Oh, he uses a Segway? Yeah. He would ride around? Well, he didn't, but he just uh, mimed it, sort of. And uh, so he leaned the stand for. He was standing on it, and he leaned it forward. And it was like, wow, you can use the mic stand for that. Yes. It blew my mind. Right. Not sure why I tell you this. But you've been in the business for such a long time. It must be sort of a thing for you when you don't get to... Well, that, you know, I've been doing comedy for, and I have a joke that I've been doing comedy over 28 years, which means I've been doing it for at least 30. It was in one of the Letterman spots. But, uh, oh, oh, I have to reference Letterman again. Mm. But the thing is, I've gone through every single thing that you can go through. And one of the things about being a comic that I think is, you know, I, I think advice is always dangerous to give. But one thing about stand-up comedy is it, the longer you do it, invariably you get better at it unless you don't want to get better at it or something happens. So I've gone through all the different things. So there was a time period where I just stood with the mic in the stand yeah. like that. And then there was a time period where I, I took it out of this. Now I'm into the more of taking it out of the stand. But I can do anything. I like to play with it as a prop. I like to do different things with it. But I don't like to be locked down to any one thing with it. No, that's good. So generally, I, I lose the stand and hold it. And so going from there to the lav wasn't a big deal. But how did you... I mean, I don't know if you know this, but you were born in 1956, which is a great, perhaps the best year. Well, it is the best year to be born in if you would like to be a really, really successful Swedish athlete. Is it really? Yeah, Bjorn Borg. You know, oh, one of my I'm one of my heroes too. Yeah. He, oh, he's, he, I'm the same age as him. You are. Yeah. Now, who else was? Who else? Who was born in '56? Oh, are you mostly Borg, or other? Were there other? There are others. Yeah, but I didn't expect you to have any follow up questions to that. So, I, so I <laughs> well, I'm a, a, Borg was one of those guys that I'm so fascinated with, and I used to hate. Uh, I used to like despise McEnroe when he was a player, but now I love him. Of course, he's yeah. so, so charming. Yeah, <laughs> but um, that documentary was amazing. 
about Borg and McEnroe. I didn't see that, but I read this really short book that's called like being John McEnroe or something. Is it his book? No, it's oh. it was written about him, about right. their rivalry, I think. And it's, ama- it's just amazing rivalry. Yeah. And, but also the fact that I didn't know that Borg, had, one time he left after he lost, he just left or he walked off the court and left. I didn't he know. He didn't go for the ceremony. And I always feel like that was a guy who's like, um, couldn't believe when he retired. And he was so, uh, I just always loved him. Do you remember his comeback? I do remember a little bit. Yeah, everybody had started playing with like... The metal? Yeah. And he was still using wood when he came back? Yeah. McEnroe also used wood for a while when he came back. That didn't turn out well, I guess. Uh, Is he still a a very popular figure, I would imagine, in Sweden? Oh, he's super famous, yeah. Oh, also we had Ingmar Stenmark. Do you know him? He was a skier. I do think I know that name. Same year, not 1956, though. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And when I was a kid, I was into Jean-Claude Killy. And Spider Savage. But Killy is older, I think, right? I think he is. Yeah, because yeah, I remember watching him. and So that's interesting. I, Do you uh, remember I, Peekaboo Street? Peekaboo? Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. Okay. She's an uh, American uh, skier. Yes, I do remember. With the most sexy name ever. It is a great name. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps not sexy, but it's super cool. Any woman is sexy to me. So then when you tell, if you told me her name is sexy, all of a sudden... I'm with you. Okay. Are you a really <laughs> sexual person? <laughs> I love the ladies. Yeah. It never changes that I, I'm, monog- I'm a monogamous yeah. and I love my wife. Yes. It all sounds terrible what I'm saying. But I do notice, I thought at one point that I would be walking down the street and then no other woman would interest me. It has not happened though. Okay. I mean, just visually. Yeah, yeah. And I also like all types of women. So you, now you- recently I've realized that women who, when they're 18 or 19, then I realize that they're young you know, like if I just, in the old days, you can't ID your eyes, you know, you, no, know, no. you don't know what your eyes are attracted to. But so now I'm realizing that I'm maturing a little bit. Also, it's, it has to do with social... Community. I don't want to be, yeah, creepy, eyes. right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, no, but sometimes when you see, you could see an 18-year-old physically, but as soon as you hear them talking, you realize that they really are young. So you, that's what I think maybe maturity is. Yeah, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, You don't buy anything, I'm saying. Well, I do, I'm yeah. I'm but anyway, 1956 was the best year to be exactly. Born. Thank you very much. And you were born in New York City, Queens, Queens. Same all right. thing, but not as cool. Okay, I mean it is New York City. Yeah, but I always make the differentiation uh, distinction between Queens and Manhattan. <laughs> I thought all Jews came from Brooklyn. Many have, but they're all over the place. They're not so much on Staten Island, but there's a lot of Jews in Queens, Long Island. Okay, come on. I don't know New York City so much. But I grew up in New York, but then I started comedy in L.A. Why? Because I wanted to be a, a musician when I was growing up. I wanted to be a singer. So I was a singer. So I was a, I've said this so many times, I, I, I'm, I, I can often bore myself. But I used to be a classical violinist. Okay. And I hated it after a while, yeah. very quickly. Yeah. And then I switched to guitar when I was 16, and that was what I wanted to do. And so when I was in college, I did... I was in bands, but I was also did theater. And then after college, I was I, I, I for some reason in my mind I was like I got to get away from New York and my family, and so I was afraid that I wouldn't really separate. And I came out to LA to be a musician, and, or and something to do with the theater or whatever. And then I just stumbled into comedy, singer songwriter wise. Who were your heroes? Well, I grew up with the usual uh, suspects of that age. I mean, I remember seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So I loved all of those groups. I loved uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash Young. I loved Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection. 
But then when I would go to summer camp as a young kid, I was Jewish, but I went to a YMCA camp where white people were the minority in the camp. And so then I really got into Motown. Okay. And as early on as Curtis Mayfield and all that stuff. So every kind of music. I was into the Grateful Dead. I was, uh, Dylan is my hero in so many ways. I keep saying he's my hero. But then in the 80s, I got into Elvis Costello and R.E.M. And, and now I'm into like a lot of what they call roots kind of music. Lucinda Williams, Steve Earle, Dave Alvin. But I also love the national do you sometimes pick up the guitar and yeah yeah it's been a long thing for me because i got so burnt out on being a songwriter it's such a weird thing i know when i've written it i know i'm not in control of you know where my career goes all the time but i know i'm very confident that the joke i've written is funny especially if, if i've tried it for a couple of like a lot of times you'll come up with something that you realize it wasn't as funny as you thought it was or it's so inside that only you and can get it but I know I'm very confident when something's funny. I'm not that way as a songwriter, guitarist. It's very hard. So I've written a number of songs that I like, but they took so long. And I put it away for a lot of years. I was so burnt out on it. But now I have played more recently. And I wish I had more time to play because I, I think I would be less judgmental about myself. Is your uh, style still the same, sort of, or...? Well, one of the reasons why I am trying to promote the idea of being, of not throwing the baby out with the religious bathwater is I think it's very important for people. There's a lot of people who claim to be atheists, but they don't care. They just don't think about the issue. Like my dad, who sadly passed away in January. Sent to here. Yeah. Yeah, and I love my dad. It's so weird because when my dad died, I didn't say anything on Twitter because I didn't want to be, you know, like I didn't want to. I, I made a joke. I'm sorry I didn't turn into a, a Facebook event. <laughs> but now I'm telling everybody, you know, and I wear a t shirt asking me about my re recently deceased father. But my dad was someone who was really truly agnostic. But in a day to day level, he would, you watch, you look at him, he's reading a paper, he's in, absorbed in things. That's the thing is like, To be absorbed in things is what I kind of like getting your head into a different space. That's what I kind of call spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I think in music, I had that, but a lot of it was drug fueled and a lot of it was. So I, I would like to approach it more like I approach comedy, which is not by, by not thinking and not worrying about the technique. So I, I think I'm optimistic about the future for me in terms of singing and playing guitar and stuff. If it's just sort of a self censorship that keeps you from writing. You don't have that with comedy, you say, but but you do have it with writing music. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I can have it. Okay. Yeah. I would be interested to hear you elaborate on the difference between writing music and writing comedy. Is it like, can you get sort of a phrase in your head and go, is this comedy? No, it's going to be a perfect love song. Or Yeah, that's the difficulty. But here's the thing. I think a lot of my difficulties are ADD-inspired, and that's why over the years I've tried to figure out a way. I could record, like if I just sit down and try and write a song, right? It takes a while or whatever, or it could come immediately. And then if I have a recording device, which is really the best way to do it, then I cannot be conscious of the writing, and then I can come up with stuff just by playing riffs and singing phrases, and then something will pop through. But then the, then the problem is, if, you do, if I do it with a joke, it's quick. I have a joke. I write them down all day long. Mm. And I can turn them into my act. Whereas with music, I would have to go back, listen to that, and then have more. 
Because a, a friend of mine gave me the greatest advice, which is such great advice. Like when you're writing, when you're creating, don't edit. Make that a separate session. Yeah, and that's, that's why uh, mm-hmm. that's what saved my life with comedy. Is I write almost is that I write almost everything down, which I think a lot of comics don't. They think of an idea, and they go, "Oh, maybe that won't work." Well, I write it down, so then later you can look back and see if it was as good as. as. So that's the thing with music is that you can't come up with the whole thing at once. So it has to be in spurts. Yeah, and it's uh, it's uh, I think I was meant to be a comedian, but I still love music so I wouldn't and also I don't rule anything out in life like I like I do watercolors and I could never do anything thinking it's not going to be a masterpiece you know what I mean it's like that has to be my attitude not even from an external point of view like this will be judged but just that I want to make the greatest thing every time I do something not the greatest thing in terms of to be known as the greatest thing but just to come out with the best that's the most wonderful thing that's why I keep coming back to writing music as well even though I suck at it but the feeling when you sort of have an idea what I sort of love with the process of making music is when you have that momentum that you feel like this is actually the greatest piece of music that anybody has ever written I have to go listen to it all day long yeah 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 and (laughs) it's very masturbatory perhaps but it's fantastic it's such a fantastic feeling you can't do that with jokes really because you're gonna need an audience except yourself right right? that's actually true in fact that's the thing that's mixed up in terms of what people don't understand I think about feedback on a level of say networks television networks because it, the system could work – like I've always – in any kind of uh, project I've been involved with, even though I could say terrible things about network executives, I don't really judge everybody that I meet negatively based on their job. So it would really work good if sometimes you could get honest feedback from a network that was based on you're so close – and sometimes you can if the relationship is right. You're so close to this project. Maybe you don't see this. That's good feedback. And that's the way you should do it with stand-up. But comics make the mistake of, and even I made the mistake of early on, is like club crowds, although I think they're better now than they've ever been. But for a long time, club crowds, like I would practice Letterman in New York, and it would die. Because that's not representative of the people who go out to a comedy club or not representative of the people who may like my comedy on that night. But what you can say is, over time, it's the great gauge. Of course. You know, 100 audiences. Mm. So that's where it's weird because sometimes if you just go by feedback, you're, it's insane because you might be on it. And that's why I, re- I really love someone like Dylan. I love Dylan's voice. I don't apologize for Dylan's voice. I love the way it sounds in my ear. But I'm embarrassed about the way I sing because I've had the kind of judgment I've heard people give towards Dylan. Yeah. That's the part of him that I think is just fearless. He really, I don't think, literally doesn't care what people think about uh, well, him. Well, I hope he doesn't after yeah. all these years. Yes. It would be, I mean, he would be dead by now <laughs> if, he, if he would care, right? Don't you think? Yeah, well, someone was talking about, I think it was Tom Sharpling was talking about how uh, if they had a Twitter back then, yeah. he wouldn't have gone electric, you know, because he'd uh, go backstage and he'd read all his tweet, uh, replies, oh, I don't like that electric thing you're doing. Oh, no. <laughs> but anyway, so... Do you remember your first gig? Comedy-wise? Yes, I do, because uh, it's very clear demarcation for me, because I was in a comedy duo. I had loved comedy, but I never thought about... I thought in the back of my mind about doing it, so my friend told me to go try with him, and I was in a duo for like two and a half years. It was called Andy and Bill, so I definitely remember that we signed up, I think, maybe the Laugh Factory. Okay, yeah. Yeah. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back in the day, yeah. It's scary. Was it on the sunset? Yeah, the Laugh Factory, which I don't, I'm not a fan of it's not. I don't like the cl- the crowds there. It, uh, it's just not for me. I play there if forced to. But back then, the the Laugh Factory was like a small, tiny little club. There used to be a restaurant called Afong's next to it, and they broke into there. But there used to be a tiny club where Jamie Masada was always the owner, and it was that. And uh, I think we tried at the Improv, and then a club called Igby's was really where I got my start with my duo, and that was a great club that was in West LA. And when you broke free, when you were solo, what was your first... That was awful. That I literally did cry. When I first did stand-up on my own, I remember the style that I had then was similar to the style now where I would... It, I remember the joke not working and I remember me saying, well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and that's be, that, So that's always been my style, but it wasn't well thought out. And then I went to my car and cried. So I didn't have, some people have the first time was the greatest experience of their life thing. That was not me. Did you get a laugh from saying that didn't go very well? I've always gotten a reaction from commenting because at least breaks, even if people don't like me, it at least breaks the rhythm of it because I always felt like I never understood. And my Achilles heel, I think my strength is my weakness because my Achilles heel is And it's weird because I'm so into doing the stuff that you believe in, yet I'm so affected by the crowd. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll overreact to lack of reaction mm. when it's not as there's not as lack of reaction as it as it was. But I never could understand comics who pretended that the jokes were going well because I don't understand that. That's not stand up comedy to me. Like you're pretending you're just the idea was get them on your side. You sort of tend to have sort of meta material that you talk about like. Comedy. Right. I went to the cellar. Uh, com- do we say the cellar? Comedy cellar. I, I, ne- I think they do call it the cellar. I went to the cellar. But I, I was never went, past there. So. I wanted to sound cool. But no, but I, uh, <laughs> I, went, I went to the comedy cellar. You're already cool. Thank You're you. You're from Sweden. Thank you very much. People want to sound like you. Thanks. <laughs> but anyway, I was there and I think I saw four comedians and two of them were like, Well, I'm a comedian, so I don't have to work that much. Right. Is that joke still around? Yeah. I'm off 18 hours a day? Yeah. That's terrible. I was wondering, because people can't relate to that, right? Is that important? Is what important? If they can relate to it or not. Well, you're putting your finger on something that that's just to me, if they're still saying that line, it's a hacky line. So I don't think it matters. I don't think if people are working all day that they care that the other person isn't but is it funny what they're saying so i think you, any, you can make anything relatable and funny 
But I, like I used to have a joke. You remember Richard Marks? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So his, uh, he did a quote where he said that making a music video is the most uh, boring thing in the world to do. Uh-huh. So I said, oh, yeah, um, that's because the guys in coal mines must say. Oh, at least when I'm making those stupid music videos. Yeah. So in that sense, I felt like when you make a comment like that, that's hard to relate to, do, yeah. where this is uh, something that uh, most people would die to be able to do, and now you're bored by it. So in that case, things can be not relatable. So it might not be, then, that you have to relate to a joke or to the setup of a joke. I don't think you have to relate it. Well, technically, you have to re- if you say by relating it, meaning enjoy it, you, yeah, have, you have to have be to able understand to understand it. Sort you have of. to understand it on some level. Yeah. But like, I'll do. I'll give you a perfect example. I'll do a joke about. I've been doing this joke every year just because it amuses me. But it's like, oh, oh, Passover gets more commercial every year. Mm. Every year they start earlier in the store with the Passover stuff. It's not even Tubishvat yet, and they got the Passover stuff on the shelves. A week after you put away your Shavuos decorations. So people laugh at that. They don't, because the joke is that they're obscure holidays. You don't have to actually know yeah, yeah, okay, the, the yeah. nature. So yeah. they're relating to me making an obscure holiday joke or, or the joke basically being that Judaism is so popular. Yeah. So if they didn't know Judaism wasn't popular, then they wouldn't get it. Okay. I didn't get it really, but I, I smiled politely. Right. Yeah. Well, I also didn't deliver it like in uh, stage mode. What? It's based on it's based on commercialization. Christmas is getting more commercial every year. Passover is getting more commercial every year. Yeah. I Pas- can draw you a schematic. Is Passover is that the Jewish equivalent of Easter? No, none of the Jewish holidays are the equivalent of something celebratory. <laughs> oh, okay. The Passover is celebrating that this is again from my act that the uh, that God passed over the Jewish persons in his houses and only murdered the firstborn of the uh, Egyptians. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. It, so it relates to. Us getting uh, Passover is us getting out of Egypt. Uh huh. Right. Which is why we, you know, we we didn't get a chance to bake the bread then, so we don't eat it now. Did you know that Sweden is probably the most secularized country in the world? I wouldn't be surprised about that, no. but I didn't know it was the most. So nobody believe is it that nobody nobody believe, organized religions are not popular there. It's not, no. Yeah. It's sort of lost popularity over the last hundred years or even more, perhaps. Because of the excesses of organized religion? I'm not sure why, really. I've understood now, speaking to people here, how, how natural it is to have a religion or to have a, a faith in some, some way, except perhaps for Bill Maher then. But, but yeah. you know what, though? I think like uh, there's a guy, Tim Minchin... I don't he's know. a popular international comedian, and he's but he's also one of these you know like a world renowned atheist. Mm. And he was saying, "Oh, I'm worried about coming to America because of how religious they are." Well, that's nonsense. I mean, it's like yes, there are people who, but it's not like if you come to America and talk about atheism or obviously Bill Maher has an audience. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's it it is kind of like a concept that we're all like church going but there is a lot of conservative weirdness in america i mean there's no question about it socially puritanical stuff that you don't have in sweden i'm sure yeah but also that it's i mean in politics as well god is a sort of a part of it and yeah and that it uh, is in generally yeah Yeah. and bill moore also told me that uh, there are no atheists in politics i mean in uh, what's it called the office exactly right well, you know, <laughs> this is another thing that, of the uh, new atheism movement that they consider themselves to be oppressed. 
which is uh, in America is just a complete bunch of. Uh, I want to find one person who lost a job because they they didn't, didn't they weren't a Christian. Yeah. Yes, it's true. When you poll people, you ask them in a poll, would you vote for an atheist? They generally say no, but what does that? Who cares? You know what I mean? It's like I get it that to check off the list of boxes mm-hmm. that you need to check, that that's a box that's not popular. But you know, six years ago we didn't have any black presidents. Do you ever get tired of being in comedy? I never. Well, if there weren't parts of it that were discouraging, you wouldn't be a human being. So, and in fact, I think one of the things about getting whatever spiritually more mature whatever is realizing that wanting every event to be fantastic is an unrealistic goal so i don't love it every minute but i love it so much that you know how they you know it's like it's easy for me having never been in a movie to say i don't i like stand up better than movies so obviously yeah i'd love to be in a movie I love acting, and I love, a, but I really do love stand up more than anything else I've ever done. And it's getting more that I love it as it goes along, not but, less. But it's also nice to see that it seems to gain popularity still. I mean, it's it's been growing every minute since I got into it, like a few years ago. I think you got into it at the greatest time. There was a time period. I wrote an article for National Lampoon. It's like on my website under none of the above. But it was called the Hack Comics Handbook, and it was written about the. I don't know. Do you know there was a big comedy boom in the eighties and nineties in America, and then, then it became like an implosion, and it was like comedy was considered very cheesy stand-up comedy. So like anybody who liked say great music wouldn't go to a comedy club. Well, that's period is gone now and now it's a renaissance mm. and there's so many different types of great comedians there are more great comedians now than i've ever seen so i do think there's been a renaissance and from the fact that like just simple things that someone can click on a link and see who they're going to see that used to not be true people would go to a club they wouldn't know who the comic they were seeing is what turned it around then well i think everything goes in cycles i think it's never gone away great comedy i mean from the time I've started, I can, this great comedians. I think it's a lot to do maybe with the decentralization of entertainment in general, like a show like Portlandia, which is like my, in many ways, my favorite show. Mm -hmm. The fact that it doesn't have to be on a network and have to have certain numbers, you can have these niche, whatever you want to call them, niche things or individual things. So that maybe that's part of it. How long has Comedy Central been around? Well, I meant decentralized, like decentralized generally. Comedy Channel was the comedy network. It was separate. Then, okay. And there was something called Ha. Mm-hmm. And then they both merged to form Comedy Central. I think it was like maybe 89 or 90. Can that be part of it? Comedy Central? Yeah. Are you working for them? No. I think, you know, a lot of people, some of the greatest stuff like Dr. Katz, Jonathan Katz started on Comedy Central. But also HBO had Larry Sanders. But I just think in general, cable... And the web now, which wasn't as true a few years ago, there's just so many different ways of seeing great things. And then I think the problem now is how does anyone make a living out of it? How do you make a living out of it? I've just been very lucky in that the idea of one of the things that started the comedy movement being popular, and I remember seeing the Rolling Stones at uh, the Coliseum in L.A., such a horrible experience. You're seeing a, like a little tiny ants running around a stage, and you're wherever the hell I was in the bleachers. And I think the idea of having an intimate experience is harder to do with music, unless you're going to a jazz club or you're going to a small club. Now, 
that's what I think people love with comedy. Yeah. So people will still come pay to see me on the road and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And then I've just been lucky because I've done different acting things and it starts a, like residuals. And But I've never had a thing where, uh, oh, I can stop now. I'm just doing it because I like it. Reading up on you, I read about your comments on Louis C.K.'s show and you were criticizing it for not being funny. I was, actually, I was. I was saying like, oh, I, he went the other way. Do you consider him being a great comedian? I do think he's a great comedian. I, I, know I, I do this speech every year in Montreal, and so I got, say, blowback from other comedians, and it wasn't recorded that year. But if you listen to the actual recording of it, I was talking about it like it's, hard, it's easy for me to make fun of Jay Leno or make fun of Targets that I really don't like that much, although Jay Leno used to be funny in the 80s. But with Louis, it's harder because we all agree that he's very, very talented. Yeah. So, yeah, it's always, it's always harder to make points about someone who's talented. But a lot of times I make fun of people who I used to like better, like Adam Sandler I used to love, and then once he started making these movies. and I, So, yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. And I watch, of course, I watch every episode of Louis. Because I'm fascinated by it. I would say that one of its strengths is that he dares not to be funny for a whole episode. It's just not comedy, really. I mean, it's something else. It's a show about life more. Right. I think you're absolutely right, except that there are people... The best Woody Allen movies, to me, are work on every level, or Albert Brooks movies. But they're still in the field of comedy. Mm. So... You know, does Louis have the right to do anything he wants? Of course he does. But at some point, it's just a personal taste thing. I see him as a comedian. Mm. And maybe if I was as interested in all these... Like, see, the word I use, which is a negative word to use, <laughs> is pretentious. Yeah. There are some times that I feel like there's a certain pretentious quality to what he's doing. And that's just a taste thing. I just feel like... And also, in his mind, he doesn't... I don't think he has someone in his life saying... Collaboration is so great. Like, you know, we talk about songwriting. The fact that Lennon and McCartney could then look at those little snippets and say, uh, do this. Yeah. He needs somebody to tell him, you don't have to rent a helicopter for $100,000. Or ending an episode where first he meets his Russian father or something and he ends up in a speedboat. A friend of mine pointed out that before binge watching, a lot of these shows that people like wouldn't even be shows because you wouldn't necessarily wait a week longer to see it. Yeah. So there's always something compelling with Louis. But I think the show started out, at least in the field of comedy. And so I think the joke is, is valid to say I, he's going the other way. Yeah. But, I, but also, I definitely understand that. Just by definition, he's doing something that most people aren't doing. So we're having an argument over someone who we both agree is very talented it's just certain things about him bug me. Did you, do you like the When It Goes Serious? Yeah. I love that he... You never know what to expect. Right. He keeps me sort of on my toes. And, yeah. And that super fantastic scene with the fat girl. Did you see that one? It was Yeah, a, she, I did see that episode. Yeah. She did like a really long monologue. It was brilliant. Not the least funny, but it was brilliant. Yeah. I don't know. I remember seeing that. I have to see it again. Because, see, sometimes I think, like, he's dealing with these issues in such a... The person... Like, in that scene... I have to watch again. She seemed like a character to me. Okay. And the situation seemed built so that he would look very liberal. Yeah. (laughs) Am I making sense? I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Speculative. Yeah. uh, Yeah, or right, right. So, like, if you're making a point about how weight is a bad thing or it's... When you make it almost like a sketch, 
where she's saying all these things that she's saying all these things that are more political things than they are actually an incarnation of somebody who he would be dating who would say that. Yeah. And so it's kind of a minor. You know who deals with these issues really well is Nicole Holosifner. She made the movie Lovely and Amazing, Friends with Money, the last movie that Gandolfini was in, where she's able to deal with some of these same issues. Maybe because she's a woman, she's able to deal with stuff coming from a woman. It seems more real to me. Yeah, perhaps. All right, I understand you. Perhaps I agreed to disagree, but never mind. We were talking about envious versus jealousy. Yes, before, before we rolled. Exactly. Do you ever feel envious with like Louis C.K. or Mark Maron for having their own shows? I know that you are a regular on... on right. Uh, I would say that envy is a part of everybody. So I think if you're a healthy person, you realize that it's envy. And then you just have to know that it's okay that you feel envious. So like I even joke that 85% of the reason why I say negative things about other comics is bitterness, envy, and bitter, envious, and jealousy. And then the other 15% are cheap shots. (laughs) So I think if if I go too far along the the line of I'm going to tell you people the truth, then who needs it? But I am absolutely love that Mark Maron has a show, and I would say I love that Louis C.K. has a show, but I don't love Louis C.K. He's not a personal friend of mine, even though he was at one point. So I can... Uh, But do you have a beef? I did have a beef with him. Okay. And I I actually talked about it a little bit. Even the details of it are so mundane, but I just had the feeling that he was in... That I don't know, the closeness I was feeling was illusory. So that was a personal thing that actually sparked other things down the line with me talking. Okay. But I'm not as crazy about him as a person, whereas I'm more crazy about Mark. So I might root for Mark more, yeah. but I don't begrudge people having shows. In the deepest part of my soul, I don't feel that way. Mm. But if it's someone who I have issues with, then I might be more. I never get to the point like, why does that guy have food and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope I'm not that petty. You know what? I want to be more truthful. Here's the truth okay. about the Louis thing. Louis comes across as if he's not consumed by ambition. And I believe that he is. So my issue with him back whatever many years ago was I felt like whatever the specifics of the, the dispute were, I felt that there was a point where he cut himself off because I think his eye on the prize was success. Not for the wrong reasons, but mixed up in there is extreme amount of ambition. Yeah. So that, I think, is the reason why I have issues with the way he presents himself as being a guy who doesn't care about that. Mm. Whereas the truth of it is, I think he really does care about being the biggest comic in the world right now. Yeah. And then my objection to the way he was perceived was just these terrible coverage in the media the just general horrendous state of criticism whether it's the emily nussbaum of the new yorker or it's the person of the new york times a lot of the times it's elitist but where they actually like where, where they were saying louis ck is the greatest comedian in the in the world well that's just in, ridiculous he's not the greatest stand-up comedian in the world there's 20 to 30 people he's greater than dave attell Get out of here. There's nobody who would say that. So then you start to see the media as their thing is, I got to find an angle on this. I got to find an angle to sell. It's like the whole thing with the Woody Allen article in the Vanity Fair. My big thing was like, you know, the court of public opinion is not an actual court. 
Everybody thought a Vanity Fair article was evidence. Meanwhile, that same Vanity Fair article, what were they promoting? That Ronan Farrow was the real son of Frank Sinatra. So that's my objection is the way the media kind of like – and media meaning us ultimately. We poison things or we see things in a simplistic way. So to me, I relate more to Mark Marin. To me, he's more menschy and I can relate to him as a person. That's why I root for him more. But that being said, as they say in the business, there's no one who's made me laugh harder than Louis C.K. So I do not deny the talent. But that is where – where there is differences sometimes just based on the, on the relationship. Yeah. You are one of the most handsome. handsome and established comedians around. Do you think that it's a problem that comedy still is a man's world? I think there's a problem in general with it being a man's world. So uh, any other uh, problem that could come in to... It's involved with every single profession. So, but it's like why I hated, you know, I hated Christopher Hitchens for so many reasons, and I didn't, not being familiar with his early work. All I was familiar with was him being in favor of the second Iraq War and saying women weren't funny, and all these things. And you know, you have these people like Adam Carolla, just complete idiots, who are saying that women are because he's not that funny. So the premise, of course, is wrong. It's the same thing as saying there aren't a lot of women scientists or anything because of it's all cultural based. You know, it's all you can't separate anything from the culture that it came up with. So definitely when someone sees a woman on stage, they think of her being a woman. I always make the analogy of like I used to do a joke about how there'd be like a all black show sitcom and then the wouldn't work. And they go, well, we tried all the black people. <laughs> Meanwhile, you don't think of an all-white sitcom failing that the, uh, the organizing principle around which why it failed was because they were white. Mm. So I think as long as in our minds we still have to go through that part of, oh, there's a woman, then that's going to be part of it. And as long as until uh, all these patriarchal systems are kind of broken down and women really have equal rights – you know, it's going to be a part of it. And I hope I'm optimistic that one day it won't be. I still think racism in America one day hopefully will be a thing of the past. You know, will you live to see that? Well, I've lived to see so much. Well, I won't know. I won't live to see it completely because there's always and there's always new hate coming up. If you had told me that people who I otherwise would have been on the same side of like Bill Maher and all these people that all of a sudden they would be the new bigotry, I wouldn't have believed it. So there's always going to be but as a generally spiritual person, and the, the image I look at is like, whatever you're going through, if you got back in space and you look at the earth and you looked how beautiful it was, all the bad things that happen, I think, are encompassed in a general good, which is the fact that we're here yeah. and that there's consciousness. But no, I think there'll always be problems, but there won't be sexism. It'll be something else. One day we will all, I don't know. Yeah, I said I had three more questions. So a long time now special. How come? Well, yeah, it's true. The, the, uh, it's been a long time without a special. Now, one of the things is that I have recorded a CD, which is called Hence the Humor. And my wife and I, we just bought a condo this last year. And then my dad, there's always excuses for me. But my dad passed away and there's been a very upheaval type of year. So I've been sitting on this album that hasn't even been edited because I'm behind on my taxes Thank God they owe me money. So there will be a CD coming out soon called Hence the Humor by the end of this year. But I did also directed my own, my wife directed, but we put out my own DVD called I Wish I Was Bitter. Yeah. But other than that, 
But that was uh, some time ago. That was some time ago, too. So I think it's time to do another special. Would you like to recommend something, anything? Well, I'm uh, singing the praises right now of James Adomian. I think he is, uh, I hope he doesn't forget me. I hope in my senior years he uses me for a couple of walk-ons. But I think he's a rev- what he's doing is like a revolution in comedy. Not that he's revolutionizing the form, but just how hilarious he is. And beyond that, Moza, Pizzeria Moza. I will also recommend The National, which I'm obsessed with, the group The, the, the National. Yeah. Uh, you know what I would say? is uh, the, Do you know David Hockney? Yes. Okay. I love his, uh, like, since you're in L.A., And if you look at his paintings, I love the way he celebrates L.A. Who do you think I should interview on, on my podcast? I think Meryl Marco would be great. Meryl Marco. Who's that? Meryl Marco was one of the original, like, you know, work with David Letterman. Uh, they dated at the time on the original L- Late Night with David Letterman. Okay. And uh, she just did a great piece in Vanity Fair about Sam Simon. Okay. Who passed away. But she's just a fascinating person. By the way, do you have uh, something coming up that you want to plug? When is this coming out? I would say perhaps in a mo- month or two. Yeah, pro- at that time, uh, uh, the third season of Marin will be on. All right. And uh, I will be on that for sure. I'm also the voice of Mort on Bob's Burgers. Yes. All right. I don't know if you get Bob's Burgers over well, there. Well, yeah, we do. Well, it's on the internet, right? And is your, uh, do, you, do you do your podcast in Swedish? Also, I have another one in Swedish. This is 100% in English, or broken English. (laughs) I think you do an amazing job. It's much better than my Swedish. Thank you so much, Tor. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you, and as always, I apologize for all of my personality traits. You don't have to. Being long-winded, for my preachiness for my uh, trying not, not to let anybody else get a word in edgewise, my uh, general self-absorption, my tendency towards narcissism, my, uh, did I say preachiness? Yes. The fact that I wasn't more charming. You know what you're doing now? It's really quite Swedish to sort of uh, officially hate on yourself. <laughs> what, what, but is that a Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, I think thing? it's very Jewish, but like yeah. I went to Australia and yeah. I had never seen self-deprecation lines get such a huge response uh-huh, okay. like they love it that you make fun of yourself in australia yeah. they don't like it when you're full of yourself and that's the way i was raised i would say it's a jewish thing but it's also comedy so like letterman does it carson does it where you're well well this is not to the degree of the self really hating on yourself no, okay i do that that's a specialty yeah. but that's woody allen too yeah now we have to stop rolling because yes. i really need to pee i messed it up for you thank you so much thank for you this was really great no you didn't mess it up thank you Wow, that was sort of semi-chaotic in a very polite way. And although Andy claimed to be preachy, he got me talking more than usual, as I said before the interview. Anyway, I had a great time. I hope you guys did as well. Follow him on Twitter. He writes stuff about, uh, well, Jews and Donald Trump and politics and so forth. I think you'll like it. He's Andy Kindler on Twitter. And if you want to follow Varvet, we're VarvetPod on Instagram and Twitter as well. Talk to you and comedian Margaret Cho. Yes, that Margaret Cho in two weeks. Thanks, Lovisa Olsson, for editing. This is Christoph Triumph saying bye. 
I wrote, I wrote down a joke going here, and it was like, many guys who are losing hair uh, convert to Judaism. <laughs> Mic drop. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 